Amen. Well, will you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the letter of Romans? Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 5, and looking at verses 12 through 21, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Today I'm really going to be focusing on verses 12 through 17. This is our second sermon on this passage. We'll have at least one more yet. But I'm going to read the whole thing today, verses 12 through 21. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. This is the very word of God. Uh, Let's give it our attention. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. We have this expression that when someone is doing something that is foolish, that has severe consequences, we say that they are playing with fire. I thought of that this week when I saw a a video news clip of a worker in a Chinese factory. He was playing with a, a Bic lighter in this warehouse that was full of these huge rolls of packing foam. And these rolls of foam were stacked one on top of another. And in his curiosity, this young man put his lighter to the corner of one of these foam rolls just to see if it would burn. 
What he did not realize was that these newly processed foam rolls were highly flammable because they still contained concentrated levels of butane gas from the process of making them. Of course, it only took him about one second to realize his mistake. Because no sooner did he set the lighter to the roll than not just that roll, but the entire warehouse full of rolls was engulfed in flames. The fire spread instantaneously from one roll to the next until the whole warehouse was ablaze. It seemed like such a trivial thing. A young man just having a bit of curious fun what seemed like probably a completely insignificant little bit of vandalism. You know, I'm just going to burn the corner of this one little roll. He had no intention of committing arson. He had no intention of burning down a building. He had no intention of risking the lives of those who work there. But he underestimated the folly and the danger of his action. The Bible says much the same thing about sin. Proverbs 6.27 asks, Can anyone take fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Now Proverbs is there talking about sexual sin in particular, but what it says about sexual sin is true of all sin. Sometimes we treat sin as if it were a harmless little thing. Think about the way that we, we talk about lying. We talk about little white lies. But what does the Bible say? It says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Our making light of sin, our excusing sin, is part of what the pastor of Hebrews calls the deceitfulness of sin. And he warns that we can be easily hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As we sin, our hearts become hard and calloused, and he pleads with us. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God. John Owen has famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Sin is not something to be toyed with or excused. It is dangerous. We cannot play with fire. We cannot take it into our lap without being burned. And there is no one in the history of the world who learned this lesson more instantaneously and more tragically than our father Adam. God had said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every fruit tree is available to you. But of this one tree, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It seems like such a small thing, doesn't it? Just eating a piece of fruit? Does that one act justify the condemnation of Adam? Does that one act justify the condemnation of the whole human race in Adam? 
I think it feels to us like a small thing because we live in a world of sin. We see gross examples of sin every day. Sin's far more heinous. We experience it. We commit it. But this was not a small sin. Adam was not living in a world of sin. Adam was living in a world of perfect righteousness. And so this sin is the sin that gave way to the blaze. That sin was an act of cosmic treason. It was rebellion of a finite creature against the infinitely holy creator. And so it turns out that taking that bite, that one seemingly insignificant action, would in fact set the whole world ablaze with sin and misery leading to death. That's what Paul says here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like the fire in that factory instantly spread from one roll to the next, so that moment death spread to all men because all sinned. And death spread so fast and so quickly that Paul refers to that as a reign of death. Now, I want to read for you another passage of Scripture today. And I probably should have done this early, but since you have your Bibles, I want you to turn back with me to the book of Genesis. And to Genesis chapter 5. Son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now look at the next son, Seth. And look at the way that verse 8 says about Seth. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Now look at verse 11. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. You can go on and read the rest of them. This is the reign of death that Paul is speaking of. And so today, as we consider this passage in Romans chapter 5, we're going to consider these two rival reigns that we find here. The one, a reign of death introduced into humanity through Adam. The other, a reign of life introduced into the new humanity through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so those are just going to be our two points here today. First, the reign of death and the reign of life. Those words, and he died, that accompany Adam and all of his descendants will accompany you one day. They will accompany every person who has ever lived or will live until the return of Christ. 
And the reason that death reigns, the reason that death spread to all men is because, he says, all sinned. Now, Paul has said that before, hasn't he? Uh, You'll remember it. It's that very famous passage in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there, Paul is speaking of our individual, actual sins against God. And for all of those sins, we are accountable to God. But that's actually not what Paul is referring to here. He's not talking about our individual sins. Here he is talking about Adam's sin and the way that we all have become involved and implicated in that sin. Well, how is that? How can he say that all have sinned when most of us, when everybody, was not yet even born? Well, here we need to remember what we talked about last week, that Adam served as a representative for all of humanity, so that all of humanity, every man, every woman, every child who descends from him by ordinary generation, they are all counted in him and implicated in his sin. Uh, Maybe a helpful way to understand this is to think about the way that the author of Hebrews talks about the Levitical priesthood. It's kind of an obscure uh, passage, but it helps to make this point. The author of Hebrews is making an argument that the priesthood that is according to the order of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood that is according to the order of Levi. And one of the ways that he makes this argument is by considering the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and he was blessed by Melchizedek. Well, what does that have to do with the Levitical priesthood? After all, Levi himself is not going to be born for a hundred or more years. But the author of Hebrews reasons that even though Levi was not yet born, he was considered in his father Abraham, so that what Abraham did, he did. So he says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The actions of Abraham stood for Levi. That is the same thing that is happening here. It's what we call this doctrine of original sin, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him and with him. And it's because of that that death begins this terrible reign, not just over Adam, but over all of his descendants. And now in verse 13, you see that Paul goes on to prove that point. He says that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does Paul mean that sin was in the world, but sin is not counted where there is no law? Does that mean that God was just letting people off the hook? That he was not judging people for their sins during that whole time prior to the giving of the law? Of course not. And we could probably immediately think of many examples where God does come in immediate judgment. You can think of the sin of Cain, or you can think of the way that God comes and judges the whole world in the flood, or you can think of the way that He comes and He judges Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And you can probably think of many other examples. But actually, Paul says we don't need to cite any of those. Because Paul's whole point here is that during that whole time, death was reigning. Death continued to take away the lives of every individual son of Adam. All the proof that we need that God's judgment and curse was hanging over humanity is that people continued to die. Even over those, he says, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Well, what does that mean? We've discussed previously the difference between what a sin is generally considered and sin committed as a direct transgression of a command. You probably noticed when we confessed uh, today from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and it asks about what sin is and it it talks about it in two two senses. It says it's any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It distinguishes between a general want of conformity to God's moral law and a direct transgression. Sin is either of those things, right? We discussed this back in chapter 4 because Paul said, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. A transgression is a particular kind of sin. A transgression is a sin where the sin is in the face of a known law. A transgression is when we have received God's commandment and we break it anyway. We break it on purpose. God says, thou shalt not do something, but we do it anyway. God says, thou shalt do something, and we refuse to do it. That is a transgression. So while every sin is an affront to God and to his holy character, transgressions are more egregious because they are a willful rebellion in the face of the law of God. That's why Paul singles out Adam and Moses. Because Adam and Moses represent those times in redemptive history when God had given formal covenantal revelation of his law. Adam received a form of that law in the garden when he was told explicitly, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our confession says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all of his posterity to personal, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. And you'll remember that through Moses, Israel received a form of God's moral law written in Ten Commandments. We read that moral law today. And again, our confession says that the same law that was given to Adam, the same law after Adam's fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments. Both Adam and Moses had a direct formal and covenantal revelation of God's law, which means that when they sinned, their sins were counted as a transgression of the law. The law served as a record that stood against them. Uh, In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says the, the law serves this way. It serves as a record of debts that stands against us with its legal demands. That is, after all, at least a a part of the reason that God gave the law. 
God gave people the law in part just to show them how sinful they were. That is going to be the clear testimony of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespasses. It came in, chapter 7, verse 5, to arouse sinful passions. And 7.13, through the commandment, it made sin appear exceedingly sinful. That's what the law does. It makes your sins clear. But what about those who lived between Adam and Moses? Were they any less sinful? Not at all. But in the absence of an express revelation of God's law, Paul says their sins were not being counted as transgressions. They were not being shown to be exceedingly sinful the way that they were shown to Adam, the way that they were shown to Moses. But in spite of all that, please don't miss Paul's larger point. That in spite of that, in spite of the fact that their sins were not being counted, in spite of the fact that they had not sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, in spite of that, what is the point? They all died. (laughs) That's the point. That they continued to die. Death reigned. Death reigned over them and death continues to reign over the sons of fallen Adam. Death is no respecter of persons. It comes to the young and to the old, to the rich and to the poor, to the healthy and the frail. And despite our culture's pretend philosophical outlook on death, that it's just a natural part of the circle of life, the Bible says otherwise. Death is anything but natural. The reign of death was not the way it was supposed to be. It was not the way that God had made it, and praise be to God, it was not the way that God would leave it. Though Adam introduced sin into the world and death through sin, God determined to intervene. And that brings us to the second point, the reign of life. And as we go on to consider this reign of life, I just want you to appreciate the enthusiasm that courses through these verses, verses 15 through 17. I tried to read it that way when I was reading it, but I want you to hear it. You hear it in the opening words. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. And again in verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Paul is enthusiastic about what God has done. He is enthusiastic about this free gift that God is giving. Now think about gift giving for a second. I wonder if you've ever found just the perfect gift for someone. Maybe you've noticed that some people are really good gift givers, right? They're generous, they're super thoughtful, uh, and as, as much as they know how to give a good gift, they know how to avoid a bad gift. I am not a particularly good gift giver. But this year for Christmas, I figured out the perfect gift for my wife. I knew she would love it. And because I knew she would love it, I was super excited to give it to her. You see, my wife loves what she calls the good ice. 
The good ice is not that standard fair ice that you get out of any old ice machine. That ice is just good for keeping drinks cold. The good ice is not only good for keeping your drink cold, it is good for crunching and snacking on. And there now sits on my kitchen counter a small appliance that has one and only one simple function, to create never-ending scoopfuls of the good ice for my beloved wife. And I was not wrong about the gift. My enthusiasm to give it to her was matched by her enthusiasm to receive it. And that is like this free gift that Paul is talking about. It's the perfect gift. The enthusiasm of the giver is matched by the enthusiasm of the recipients. Well, what is the gift? Who is the giver? What makes the gift so great? And who are the recipients? Well, the gift is actually not immediately identified for us, is it? He just keeps telling us it's a free gift, but he doesn't tell us what it is. So we're kind of like children, you know, shaking Christmas packages. What could this possibly be? Excited to find out what it is. Or like my wife, who played 20 questions with me to try to figure out her gift. She did not. Fortunately, we do not have to wait long. Because Paul tells us in verse 17 that the free gift is the free gift of righteousness. It is the gift of righteousness. And who gives this gift? Well, the giver of the gift is none other than Christ himself. Paul tells us in verse 15 when he says, the free gift is by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. And what is it that makes this, this gift so great? Why is this the perfect gift? Well, we, we begin to understand why it's the perfect gift when we compare it and contrast it with what Adam gave us. Listen to the contrast. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And verse 16, The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. I hope you hear his enthusiasm. The gift is not like what Adam gave us. It's not like the trespass, and it's not like the result of the trespass. It is so much greater and so much glorious, and here's the reason. Because the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. The gift is perfect, beloved, because it is the thing that you need the most. If the whole human race was condemned to a reign of death because of sin, what do sinners need so that they might not be condemned? What do sinners need so that they might not live under the terror and reign of death? What do sinners need? They need to not be sinners. They need righteousness. Because only the righteous receive God's verdict of justification. That is what Paul says Jesus gives. He gives 
the free gift of righteousness, and not just any righteousness. His own righteousness. His righteousness that came under the same kind of covenantal conditions as Adam and Moses. Paul tells us that Jesus was born of a woman and born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law. Where Adam and Israel sinned under the law and were accounted transgressors, Christ obeyed under the law and was accounted righteous. And it is that righteous obedience that Jesus gives as a gift to sinners. And because Jesus gives righteousness, what is the result? Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, through His free gift of righteousness and through His gracious verdict of justification, Jesus introduces a rival reign to the reign of Adam. He introduces a rival reign to the reign of sin and death. He introduces a reign of grace and of life. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ shall all live. You remember what Jesus says to Mary at the tomb of her brother. Lazarus has just died and and she's weeping for him. And Jesus tells her, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, do you believe this? And I think that question moves us nicely to the question of who are the recipients of this free gift? Who are the recipients? Who are those who will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 17 says the recipients are those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. That's a bit like defining a word with the word you're trying to define, isn't it? Who are the receivers? Well, they're those who receive. So maybe the better question is, how do the receivers receive? What is it about them that makes them receivers? Did they pay something for this? It's a free gift. It's the free gift of righteousness. If they had paid to receive it, it could not possibly be called the free gift. Well, maybe they did something to earn it. No, it's not only the free gift. It is the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. And if, if it is of grace, then it cannot be of works. So how do you receive this free gift of righteousness How do you receive this justifying verdict? How do you participate in this reign of life? I hope by now, at this point in Romans, you know the way. I trust you do. But just in case the word faith is not coming to your mind, let me read you a few scriptures from Romans 4. 
Romans 4, verses 3 through 5, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Romans 4.22, that is why his faith was counted as righteousness. But the words that it was counted to him were not written for his sake only but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised Him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How do you receive the free gift of righteousness? Simply by faith. Simply by believing in God's word of promise. Simply by looking in humble dependence and trust to His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I'd put the question of Jesus to Mary, to you. Do you believe this? And if you don't believe this, why not? The free gift of righteousness is held out to all who will receive it. Why will you go on pretending that sin is not serious? Why will you pretend that it will not have consequences? Why will you die apart from Christ? Why will you suffer the judgment of condemnation? Why will you face the wrath and judgment of God for your sins? Why will you not turn away from your sins and turn to Christ? And believe in Him and receive the free gift of righteousness. But beloved, if you do believe this, then be of good courage. Because even though you die, you will live. The reign of righteousness, the reign of life, through the free gift of righteousness has begun in the one man, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you that Jesus is just as enthusiastic to give you this gift as you are to receive it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this perfect gift, this gift that we need, the righteous perfections of your Son. We thank you for the reign of life that has begun, that we can be confident that even though we die because of our our link to Adam, nevertheless, we shall live because of our link to the second and last Adam. Because you have done in your righteousness, all that your law required. Your perfect obedience has met all of your law's demand. And you have taken all of the curse that was due to us for sin through your death on the cross so that you might account to us righteousness so that we might have life. Lord, we pray that we might have life in your Son and that we might have life more abundantly, that in having life we would desire to walk in your ways to the glory of your name, that we would put to death what is earthly in us and live unto Christ, being mindful that we have died and have been raised up with him and are seated with him in the heavenly places. 
And so we thank you for this gospel word and we pray that it would be peace to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And just as in the preaching of the gospel, we have the word of God's amazing love. So in this visible preaching of the gospel, the Lord's Supper, we see once again of God's amazing love for us. A love so great that we can hardly believe that he invites us to this table to come and to eat with him and to fellowship with him and to fellowship with one another. But his love is so great that he has done all that is necessary so that we with boldness and confidence can come to him. This is a meal for sinners. It is a meal that God has designed specifically for those whose consciences are broken down and grieved with sin. But it is a meal for repentant sinners. It is a meal for those who hate their sin, who long to be free of it, and are endeavoring to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so today, God invites you to this meal. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, He calls you to come and to have communion with Himself. And what does the meal represent? The meal represents the body of Christ, broken and torn to pieces. It represents His blood poured and spilled out for the forgiveness of your sins. And if that is the meal, then who could not come in faith? But this meal is for those who come in faith, who come in repentance, trusting in Christ. And so if you do not belong to Christ, if you are not a baptized communicant member of His church, And if you are not trusting in Him and walking in Him, then this meal is not yet for you. Now, I know that some of you belong to Christ but are not yet communicant members, that you have not yet professed faith. Even as this meal comes to you and as you see it and you smell it and you see your parents taking it, long for the day when you can participate in it. Long for the day when you can profess your faith, discern the Lord's body, and come to Him. There are also some of you who who know in your hearts that you are not walking with Christ. Again, why not? The free gift is held out to you. Why would you delay? And so even though you might let these elements pass you by today, do not let Christ pass you by, but look to Him, call out to Him in faith. He promises that He will save whoever calls upon His name. And so as we prepare our hearts to come, then let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we approach your table, we feel very acutely that we are not worthy of it, that we do not belong here. And yet through the gospel, we have been made worthy, not because of anything in us, but because of the righteousness of your Son, which has been given to us because that verdict of justification that we are right with you has been spoken over our lives because that reign of life has begun even through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us the down payment of that eternal inheritance. And so we pray, Lord, I pray that for all of those who are your servants trusting in you that they would come with faith to this meal, that they would cast off the accusations of their accuser And that they would come and hear your voice, hear your word of peace and of pardon. Lord, I pray that any 
who may not come, Lord, I pray that they would call upon You in faith and in repentance and look to Your grace. And Lord, we pray that You would take now these ordinary elements of bread and of wine and that You would set them apart for this holy use so that even as we receive them, we might know that we receive Christ Himself and all of His benefits for our salvation and growth and grace. Do this now to the glory of Your name, we pray. Amen.